Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the August podcast. This month we publish three editorials, six original research papers, a review, and two teaching cases. We also publish several letters and several book reviews. This month's issue illustrates that the journal has become international in scope, with papers representing seven countries. There are papers related to acute care, long-term care, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cystic fibrosis, post-surgical care, invasive mechanical ventilation, and non-invasive mechanical ventilation. We also provide the opportunity for respiratory therapists to earn continuing respiratory care education credits. Sarah, tell us more about this month's papers. Hypercapnia test as a predictor of success in spontaneous breathing trials and extubation is presented by Rorich et al. from the Hospital Universitario Sondureta in Spain. The objective of this study was to determine whether a decreased response to hypercapnia is associated with failure to successfully complete a spontaneous breathing trial or extubation failure. A hypercapnia test was performed in 103 patients in which the dead space was doubled to cause rebreathing. The ratio of airway occlusion pressure one-tenth second after the onset of inspiratory effort during the hypercapnia test to its baseline value was calculated. Also calculated was the ratio of change in minute volume to the change in PaCO2, which the authors called the hypercapnic ventilatory response. Finally, the ratio of the change in airway occlusion pressure one-tenth second after the onset of inspiratory effort to the change in PaCO2 was calculated, which the authors call the hypercapnic respiratory drive response. For predicting success of the spontaneous breathing trial and extubation, sensitivity was 0.8 and specificity was 0.47 for the ratio of airway occlusion pressure one-tenth second after the onset of inspiratory effort during the hypercapnia test compared to its baseline value. For the hypercapnic ventilatory response, the sensitivity was 0.86 and the specificity was 0.53. For the hypercapnic respiratory drive response, the sensitivity was 0.82 and the specificity was 0.55. The authors concluded that patients who failed a spontaneous breathing trial or extubation had less response to hypercapnia than those who successfully completed a spontaneous breathing trial and did not need reintubation. However, the hypercapnia test was not useful in predicting success of a spontaneous breathing trial or extubation success. The next paper is by Perez Padilla from the Instituto Nacional de Enfermedades in Mexico. The title of the paper is Spirometry Quality Control Strategies in a Multinational Study of the Prevalence of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. 
This study is the result of a centralized spirometry quality control program developed for a population-based survey of the prevalence of COPD in five cities in Central and South America as part of the Latin American Project for the Investigation of Obstructive Lung Diseases. With the aim of meeting the 2005 spirometry quality criteria of the American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society, in each of the five cities a local supervisor identified poor quality spirometries that needed to be repeated. Once a week, all spirometry results were sent via email to the study's quality control center in Mexico City for review and feedback. At the end of the study, 94% of the 5,315 subjects had spirometries that met the 1994 ATS quality criteria, and 89% met the 2005 ATS-ERS criteria. 90% of the 64 technicians got 86% of their subjects to meet the 1994 ATS criteria and got 75% of their subjects to meet the 2005 ATS-ERS criteria. In the first 10 subjects they tested, 90% of the 64 spirometry technicians got 70% of their subjects to meet the 1994 ATS criteria and got 60% of their subjects to meet the 2005 ATS-ERS criteria. The authors conclude that standardization of equipment, training, and supervision of spirometry is essential in a multinational spirometry survey. Centralized quality control can be done via email with good reliability and low cost. The next paper is by Fiore et al. from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Their paper is entitled, Do Directed Cough Maneuvers Improve Cough Effectiveness in the Early Period After Open Heart Surgery? Effect of Thoracic Support and Maximal Inspiration on Cough Peak Expiratory Flow, Cough Expiratory Volume, and Thoracic Pain. They conducted a randomized intrasubject crossover trial to evaluate the effect of thoracic support in which the patient holds his or her hands over the incision. In 21 subjects, they measured maximal inspiration on cough peak expiratory flow, cough expiratory volume, and incision pain during cough in the early period after open heart surgery. Cough evaluation was undertaken on the first and second morning after surgery. On both measurement days, the subject did a baseline cough, then, in random sequence, performed three cough conditions, an additional baseline cough, supported cough, and supported cough preceded by maximal inspiration. Thoracic support alone did not significantly affect the objective measures of the cough. With maximal inspiration and thoracic support, objective measures of cough were significantly higher than in all other cough conditions. Pain during cough was not influenced by the different cough conditions. There was no significant difference in the cough variables or pain during the different cough conditions on the first versus the second measurement day. The authors concluded that maximal inspiration increased objective measures of cough, but the method of thoracic support used did not reduce pain during cough or influence the cough values measured. Next, we have the paper entitled Aspergillus and Allergic Bronchopulmonary Aspergillosis in an Irish Cystic Fibrosis Population, a Diagnostically Challenging Entity. 
The authors are Chorty Mall et al. from Dublin, Ireland. The objective of the study was to determine the rate of aspergillus colonization and allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, or ABPA, in a population of Irish patients with cystic fibrosis. In 50 consecutive patients with cystic fibrosis who presented with exacerbations, the authors analyzed for the presence of aspergillus in the sputum and signs and symptoms of ABPA. 30% of the patients grew aspergillus species in their sputum cultures, and 12% had ABPA. Matched for age, gender, genotype, and microbiology, there was no significant difference in FEV1 in subjects with aspergillus-positive sputum than in those not colonized with aspergillus. Subjects with ABPA experienced sharp, short-term deterioration in lung function, with a mean 6.7% decrease in FEV1, which returned to baseline following at least four weeks of treatment. The authors conclude that aspergillus positive sputum of itself was not a poor prognostic sign in terms of lung function over the five-year study course. ABPA produces short-term reversible declines in lung function and responds to treatment. The frequency of aspergillus isolates did not correlate with the occurrence of ABPA. A low threshold for the diagnosis of ABPA should be maintained in any patient with CF who does not improve with antibiotics. Transcutaneous carbon dioxide pressure monitoring in a specialized weaning unit is a paper by Johnson et al. from the Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. The objective of this study was to evaluate transcutaneously measured PCO2 values during ventilator weaning and during bronchoscopies on ventilated patients. The authors compared transcutaneous PCO2 to arterial PaCO2 and end-tidal PCO2. Transcutaneous PCO2 was measured in tracheostomized patients with prolonged weaning failure during daytime spontaneous breathing trials, during the first night off the ventilator, and during bronchoscopy while ventilated, simultaneous with an arterial blood draw for blood gas analysis and with end-tidal PCO2 measurements. There were often changes greater than 10 millimeters of mercury in transcutaneous PCO2 during daytime spontaneous breathing trials and the initial overnight off-ventilator periods, which influenced decisions of whether to continue the spontaneous breathing trial. Transcutaneous PCO2 often rose during bronchoscopy, which influenced a change in ventilator settings 44% of the time. Arterial PCO2 closely matched transcutaneous PCO2, with a mean difference of 0.5 plus or minus 4.1 millimeters of mercury. However, there was a greater difference between arterial PCO2 and end-tidal PCO2. The authors conclude that monitoring transcutaneous PCO2 is helpful in assessing and managing patients undergoing spontaneous breathing trials during the first night off the ventilator and during bronchoscopy on ventilated patients. Transcutaneous PCO2 more closely matches arterial PCO2 than does end-tidal PCO2. The next paper is by Sara et al. from Thessaloniki, Greece, and the paper is entitled 
quality of life and social economic characteristics of Greek male patients on long-term oxygen therapy. The objective of the study was to determine the health-related quality of life in patients with COPD using long-term oxygen therapy and to assess the relationship of socioeconomic characteristics and pulmonary function test results to quality of life scores. The authors compared 85 patients with COPD and hypoxemia who were on long-term oxygen therapy to a control group of 48 patients with stable COPD but without hypoxemia. All subjects were asked to rate their dyspnea on the Modified Medical Research Council Dyspnea Scale, the Medical Outcomes Study Short Form 36, the General Health Questionnaire, and a questionnaire which was developed for this study to measure independence in activities of daily living. Pulmonary function tests, arterial blood gas analyses, and socioeconomic characteristics were also recorded. The subject's socioeconomic status was moderate to low. Quality of life was impaired in patients on long-term oxygen therapy, especially in the physical function domain, and most of the examined dimensions correlated with the severity of dyspnea and psychological status. The authors conclude that quality of life in patients with COPD and on long-term oxygen therapy is low and is influenced by dyspnea, mental status, and incapacity rather than by physiological variables. The authors recommend a multidimensional therapeutic approach that targets symptom control and support of activities of daily living to improve the patient's overall quality of life. Finally, we have the review by Scala and Naldi from Ospirale Estonato in Arezzo, Italy, entitled Ventilators for Non-Invasive Ventilation to Treat Acute Respiratory Failure. The application of non-invasive ventilation to treat acute respiratory failure has increased both inside and outside intensive care units. The choice of ventilator is crucial for the success or failure of non-invasive ventilation in the acute care setting because poor tolerance and excessive air leaks are significantly correlated with failure. Patient ventilator asynchrony and discomfort can occur if the physician or respiratory therapist fails to adequately set the ventilator to respond to the patient's ventilatory demand, and that objective will only be achieved if the ventilator's technical peculiarities are fully understood. A wide range of ventilators of different complexity have been introduced in clinical practice to non-invasively support patients in acute respiratory failure but the numerous commercially available ventilators have substantial differences that can influence patient comfort, patient ventilation interaction, and potentially clinical success. This review examines the most relevant aspects of the historical evolution, the equipment, and the acute respiratory failure clinical applications of ventilators for non-invasive ventilation. Those of us who care for mechanically ventilated patients should be interested in the study by Rory Chittal in which they determined whether decreased response to hypercapnia was associated with failure to successfully complete a spontaneous breathing trial. Patients who failed a spontaneous breathing trial or extubation had less response to hypercapnia than those who successfully 
completed a spontaneous breathing trial and did not need reintubation. However, the hypercapnia test was not useful in predicting success of a spontaneous breathing trial or extubation success. As pointed out in the accompanying editorial by Sassoon, failure to wean from mechanical ventilation is often due to respiratory muscle weakness and impaired respiratory mechanics rather than a depressed respiratory drive. The study by Rorich et al. does not support the use of CO2 challenge to predict weaning success. Performing spirometry well requires careful attention to technique, which is supported by the spirometry guidelines and recommendations by societies such as the American Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society. Perez Padilla et al. report the results of a centralized spirometry quality control program developed for a population-based survey in five cities in Central and South America. Using the same handheld spirometer at all sites, using centralized training, and providing feedback from a quality control center resulted in a good quality at low cost. As Stoller points out in an accompanying editorial, this study offers important reminders for investigators, respiratory therapists, and supervisors of pulmonary function laboratories. After open-heart surgery, especially in the early post-operative period, cough function may be impaired by difficulty in performing deep breathing, reduced intrathoracic pressure generation, or thoracic pain. In this patient population, Fiori et al. evaluated the effect of thoracic support on cough peak expiratory flow, cough expiratory volume, and incision pain during cough early after open heart surgery. They found that maximal inspiration increased objective measures of cough, but the method used for thoracic support did not reduce pain during cough or influence the cough values measured. As pointed out in the editorial by Sobish, this paper adds support to the axiom that a cough is only as effective as the deep breath preceding it. The paper by Johnson et al. evaluated the use of non-invasive measures of CO2 during ventilator weaning and during bronchoscopies on ventilated patients in a specialized weaning unit. They found that transcutaneous PCO2 more closely matches arterial PCO2 than does entitled PCO2. They suggest that monitoring transcutaneous PCO2 is useful to assess and manage patients undergoing spontaneous breathing trials, drawing the first night off the ventilator, and drawing bronchoscopy. While these results are interesting, whether the use of transcutaneous PCO2 improves patient safety is unknown. Also unknown is whether similar results would be found in patients weaning from mechanical ventilation in the acute care setting. It is of interest to note that one of the last physiologic parameters to be affected during a failed spontaneous breathing trial is arterial PCO2 suggesting that parameters other than blood gases, such as breathing pattern changes, might better indicate a failed spontaneous breathing trial. Long-term oxygen therapy can improve survival in patients with COPD. 
It is also well known that COPD has a high impact on health-related quality of life. Tassara et al. report that quality of life in patients with COPD on long-term oxygen therapy is low and is influenced by dyspnea, mental status, and incapacity rather than by physiologic variables. They recommend a therapeutic approach that targets symptom control and support of activities of daily living to improve the patient's overall quality of life. This paper should stimulate clinicians caring for patients with COPD to be more attentive to the quality of life of their patients. Patients with cystic fibrosis can become chronically colonized by many organisms, of which aspergillus can be particularly troublesome. When it acts as an allergen, aspergillus can induce a hypersensitivity reaction in the lungs, leading to allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, or ABPA. Chattermall et al. determined the rate of aspergillus colonization and ABPA in a population of Irish patients with cystic fibrosis. The authors report that aspergillus positive sputum is not a poor prognostic sign in terms of lung function, but ABPA produces short-term reversible declines in lung function and response to treatment. A low threshold for the diagnosis of ABPA should be maintained in any patient with cystic fibrosis who does not improve with antibiotics. The use of non-invasive ventilation has increased tremendously in recent years. The review by Scala and Nalti provides a detailed overview of ventilators used for non-invasive ventilation. This review should be of particular interest to respiratory therapists and others responsible for the selection of a ventilator for non-invasive ventilation and for the initiation of this therapy. We also published two teaching cases. The case by Berenstein et al. discusses the common and uncommon causes of bluish appearance and suggests a diagnostic approach to such patients. The case by Haynes describes how manipulation of rise time and breath termination criteria facilitates better patient ventilator synchrony in a sleeping patient receiving pressure support ventilation. Finally, we publish several letters and book reviews. There should be something of interest for all respiratory care providers in this month's issue. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.